Prince of Holy Scripture, I have an assigned task this morning. We're in this series called Church Matters. There it is up on the helpful slide. I feel like uh, the price is right with Carol, Carol Merrill. Um, we've been doing this series, and this is part four, and I just want to remind everybody where we've been. This is a church, number one. A church is formed by the Holy Spirit. Number two, a church worships together. And today, a church studies Scripture together. So I have three simple questions for you. You ready? What, how, and who? Those are my questions. It's entirely focused on verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So the what is the apostles' teaching. The how is the devoted themselves, and the who is the they, just so that we're all together. So let's take them one at a time. First of all, the what, the apostles' teaching. This is a setup for disaster. I hope you realize that. You're talking to a theologian. I've spent most of my life trying to figure out the importance of the Bible and studying the Bible, and I've been asked to preach on how important the Bible is in studying on the Bible. It's ridiculous. How can I possibly leave out anything? In which case, you'd be here for five months or five weeks, and that wouldn't be good. So it's a question of what not to say. So I've tried to hone this down and to really focus it in ways that are important. So first of all, taking all of my reading all my life, two things about the Bible. One is a statement and the other is an image. The statement is from Austin Ferrer, who is warden of Keeble College, Oxford in the 20th century and a great Anglican thinker. And he had a way of talking about the Bible that I think is one of the most helpful ways I've ever found. He says this, what is the Bible like? It is like a letter which a soldier wrote to his wife about the disposition of his affairs and the care of his children in case he should chance to be killed. And the next day he was shot and died, and the letter was torn and stained with his blood. Her friend said to the woman, the letter is of no binding force. It is not a legal will, and it is so injured by the accidents of the writer's death that you cannot even prove what it means. But she said, I know the man and I am satisfied I can see what he means, and I shall do it because it is what he wanted me to do, and because he died the next day. Have you got the image? It's a love letter from God stained with his own blood. Now you need to stay there just for a second. I've been married uh, 36 years, so I actually fell in love back when the mailbox mattered, and physical mail actually mattered. You have to, I feel like I'm talking about when the dinosaurs <laughs> roamed the earth, but actually there was a time in my life when I was falling in love, when the mailbox was the most important thing, and the mail was the most important part of the day. Why? Because I wanted a letter, and I spent a lot of time writing letters, and I spent an enormous time reading letters, and I cared about every word, and I read them over and over, and I collected them, because that's what people who are in love do. It creates a passionate desire and interest. When you understand something's importance, it motivates you, and it's very important that you capture that. If you had somebody that you cared about that wrote you only one letter and died and stained it with their own blood, how important a letter would it be? It's absolutely vital that we understand what we're dealing with. It's very, very sacred. It's very, very important. There's nothing more important for Christians than the Bible. And the second image is from Judaism. It's really very simple. It's straight from Exodus 19 and 20 when Moses is up on the mountain. And if you remember, he comes down to give the Ten Commandments. Remember, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. Boom. 
But what I want you to remember about it is the scene in Exodus 19 before he comes down the mountain when there's fire and lightning and great smoke and the people of God are so fearful that they don't even want to see Moses' face even though it's just reflecting the glory of God. They ask him to put a veil over his face. So when he comes down that mountain and he brings those two tablets, here's the image from Judaism. You should study the Bible as if Moses brought it down from the mountain and presented it to you himself. It's a beautiful image. If you were there after all of the mountain and the shaking and the lightning and the smoke and the fire, how would you respond? That's the question. It's super, super, super important. One of the things you got to do when you start with the Bible is just pause and say, what am I doing? What is this that I'm looking at? And remember the sacredness and the importance of what you're dealing with. So first of all, what it is. Second of all, how to go about it. They devoted themselves. You see where I am, verse 42? It's a great verb in the Greek. It means to attend constantly, to persist in, to persevere in, to continue steadfastly in. It's a word that's used later in Acts of personal attendance, and you got the image of kind of a butler at a mansion uh, at one of the greatest states in England, and the whole point is the butler attends to uh, the, the person who owns the manor's needs every moment of every day from morning, noon, and night. The whole thing, it's at their beck and call. It's that kind of a thing. It's that kind of persistent attention. It's a, it's a consistent, single-minded, adherent openness to. It's a very, very powerful description of someone who's highly motivated. Here's John Stott in his commentary on Acts talking about what's being portrayed. The very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Nor did those early apostles imagine that because they had just received the Spirit, he was the only teacher that they needed, and they could just dispense with human teachers. On the contrary... They sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered in it. Yes, exactly. Cranmer has a great collect. Jonathan prayed it at the beginning, but I want to make sure to go back to it because it's fantastic. It's a collect on Scripture. In the ancient prayer book, it was in Advent, and fortunately for us in Acne, it's been restored. The Episcopal Church relegated it to the end of the church year when everybody forgot about everything. But now it's back at the beginning of the church year where it belongs. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures, he prays, to be written for our learning. And what I want you to notice is the verbs. Grant that we may in such wise, and here they come, five of them, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of you who are Rudyard Kipling fans, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. 
Everywhere I've been in parish ministry, I tirelessly tell people the Bible does not yield its secrets to inattentive readers. That's a negative way of saying it. The positive way of saying it is you've got to be passionate about studying the Bible and look at it from every conceivable dimension and be absolutely fearless in your ability to ask whatever questions you need to to figure out exactly what it means. It is an aggressive posture of someone who's desperate to learn. Both my parents were teachers. I mentioned this from time to time. What do teachers really want? I'll tell you the number one answer. Motivated students. You can teach a motivated student anything. Right? And you look at the average American Christian, and if you're lucky enough, they actually have a Bible devotion time, and they, you know, they get out of bed, and their eyes are all bleary, and they're barely awake, and they, they barely open the scriptures. And no, that's not going to work. That's not what's being described here. It's an entirely different thing. It's a very, very passionate exercise of someone who really, really loves something and wants to figure it out in every conceivable dimension. For those of you taking notes this morning, I want you to take this down. It's my favorite passage in all the Bible about Bible study. Bet you didn't know there was a passage in the Bible about Bible study. There's lots of them. But this is my favorite. It's hiding in Proverbs, you know, the book that nobody reads and nobody preaches on. But it's actually back there in the Old Testament. If you're taking notes, it's chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I just adore this. My son, says the writer of Proverbs, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. If you cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Shall we have some fun just for a moment? So I'll ask you a question. Just for the purposes of creativity and trying to illustrate what I mean. So every week in the creed, we confess that he was raised again on the third day, and then it says, in accordance with the scriptures. We actually say, so all I'm doing is quoting to you something you actually say every week, right? So here's my question. What scriptures? I mean, you say it every week. Now, let me, let me make it even harder for you, because you may not know this. That's actually a quote from 1 Corinthians 15. So what's being quoted is St. Paul, and that's actually in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul actually says to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of his first letter, Jesus was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It's in the text, which means what? It means he's not talking about the New Testament. <laughs> he can't possibly be talking about the New Testament because he's writing as an apostle to the early church. The only Bible that they know is the Old Testament. So here's a question. Where in the Bible... Does it say in the Old Testament that Jesus was raised on the third day? Hmm. That's a good illustration of the kind of question that an active listener thinks about asking. Because, why? Because it's in the creed, because it's in the Bible, because you say it. But what does it actually mean? See, now you've gone from being passive to being active. What's being talked about in Proverbs is search for it like hidden treasure. Wow, that's real active searching. That's passionate searching. That's day after day searching. That's every conceivable dimension in every way searching. So hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. I got to stop or I'll launch over the pulpit, but you get the idea. It's really, really important that you learn to study it with curiosity and activity and attention and respect and openness and on and on we could go. 
it would be an interesting exercise just to think about putting yourself in Acts after Pentecost and just sitting at the apostles' feet and simply asking yourself the question, what would your posture be? And just, just think about it. You wouldn't be passive. <laughs> you wouldn't be focused on anything else. You wouldn't be distracted. You'd be very, very excited. You'd be very, very focused. You'd be trying to give every conceivable attention because that's what somebody who really wants to learn looks like. Those are the students my parents was after. Those are the students every teacher is after. Those are the students the Lord is after too, brothers and sisters. So first, the Bible is a love letter from God stained with his own blood. Second, it has to be actively studied as if we're searching for hidden treasure. Y'all with me so far? All right, third. And I don't want you to miss the third. It's going to tie into next week's part of the series, so I don't want to steal all of the thunder from next week. But it's, it's not simply that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they, it's the they that did it. It's not individual study only, it's communal study. The key idea in the passage is they, and that word together, if you look at those verses from 42 to 47, is actually used twice, and the word fellowship actually means togetherness, it means community. It's a loaded word. Koinonia is the Greek word from which we get the English word fellowship, and it's next week's topic. But I want to just say a word about it. So here's J.R. Packer in one of his books talking about what this means. What is meant by fellowship in the book of Acts? Gossip? Cups of tea? Tours? Kind of interesting one since we're near Charleston. No. What is being referred to is something of a quite different order on a quite different level. They met constantly to hear the apostles teach and to share the common life and to break bread and to pray. The Greek word for fellowship comes from a root meaning common or shared. So fellowship means common participation in something either by giving what you have to the other person or receiving what he or she has for you. Give and take is the essence of fellowship, and give and take must be the way of fellowship in the common life in the body of Christ. Now, this is loaded stuff, brothers and sisters, and I don't want to get way off on it because I don't want to steal all of next week. But this word common, koinos in Greek, real fellowship in Christian terms has three dimensions. See if you can wrap your mind around this. God shares in, we share together, and then we as a community share out. And only when all three of those dimensions are really flowing is the Spirit really working the way God wants to work in the church. Now, why do I bring that up? Because when you're talking about the Bible, you have to realize you see things in the text that I don't see and vice versa, which is why you need to be in a life group. Because you could read Exodus 20 for years and not see one thing that Jonathan's going to see and vice versa. But you see things in the text that I don't see. And I, so I need your insight and you need mine. Something happens when people together as a community start getting curious about Scripture together and seek to learn together. And what it does is it brings out all the dimensions. So what happens is that threefold dimension is God shares in, and I learn from you and you learn from me, but then because I get encouraged by you and you get encouraged by me, we both then know more, and there's a sense in which it's almost a three-stranded cord that's not easily broken to quote Ecclesiastes. It's a remarkable image. Here's Bear Bryant, arguably one of the greatest football coaches ever, talking about how to work as a team. I figure he ought to get some clout in this area. He said once this, he said, I love this quote, he said, I'm just a plow hand from Arkansas. 
But I've learned how to hold a team together, how to lift some men up, how to calm down others, until they finally got one heartbeat together, a team. And there's just three things I'll say. If anything goes bad, I did it. If anything goes semi-good, then we did it. If anything goes real good, then you did it. That's all it takes to get people to win football games for you. Boom. Very, very good. There's a wonderful story about Jimmy Durante, one of the great entertainers a number of generations back now. He asked to be part of a show for World War II veterans. He told them his schedule was really busy and he could only afford a few minutes. But if they, if they wouldn't mind, he was going to do one of his short monologues and then immediately leave for his next obligation, which was not very long after. So, of course, he would come, and the show's director agreed, you know, on those terms, and Jimmy gets on stage, and it didn't go as planned. He went through his short monologue, and the applause grew louder and louder, and he stayed, and he kept staying, and in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, finally takes a last bow, and he leaves the stage. Backstage, somebody stops him and said, I thought you had to go after a few minutes. What happened? Durante answered this way. He said, I did, I did have to go but I can show you the reason I stayed. You see for yourself if you look down in the front row. In the front row were two men, each of whom had lost an arm in the war. One had lost his right arm, and the other has lost his left. Together in the front row, they were able to clap together. That's exactly what they were doing. Louder and louder and more cheerfully each time. It's a beautiful image of what I'm talking about. There's something powerful when people do things together. He simply had to keep going because of the, the degree to which they were mutually enjoying what he was said and living it out sacramentally through their bodies. You got the image? So it's a love letter from God. It's to be studied scrupulously and carefully, and it's to be studied together. Now, I'll go from preaching to meddling, and then I'm done. But this is where it will get very practical because I really care about this. So shall we talk about this in earnest? where you live and move and have your being for a moment. So let's say something at the outset just very practically. First of all, if you don't have an individual habit of studying the Bible yourself, today is the first day of the rest of your life. See, that's a great thing Jonathan and I get to do. I'm giving you great insight, right? None of us get out of here alive, just so we're clear, right? No, none of us do. And also, today's the first day of the rest of your life. Exactly when do you think you're going to start? I deal with people in the church all the time, 60, 70 years old, never studied the Bible. So what? Start now. Today's the first, but here's the thing. If you're going to start, how are you going to start? Here's a newsflash. Get a Bible that helps you. Oh, boy. But you'd be amazed at how many Christians purport to care about the Bible, and they don't own a study Bible that they can actually use. Now, did you notice what I just said? A Bible that they can actually use. I was in one parish, and this woman got all excited about the NIV study Bible, and she bought it. And about a month later, I saw her, and she said, well, I'm not really learning that very much. And, she, and I said, why? And she said, the, the page has the letters too small. I can't read it. <laughs> and I said to her, well, why did you order that one? <laughs> So it does involve certain practicalities, like you want to get a Bible that's helpful, that you like to use, that's the kind of thing that you're used to in a translation that you used to. All these things matter. But you need to have an individual quiet time. There needs to be a special time of day. There needs to be a special place in the house where you actually do it. And here's another news flash: You actually need a program that takes you through the Bible on a regular basis, listen, as a whole because it's actually written to be read as a whole. You do know it begins in a garden and ends in a garden, right? 
It actually has a structure that matters. And even though Revelation's hiding in the back and no one wants to touch it with a 25-foot pole, it's actually in there for a reason. And if you have to study the Bible over a year and do it in a systematic way where the, the actual system that you're using makes you read the Bible, you get parts you like. You also get parts you don't like and parts that make you uncomfortable. That's important. So a study Bible, a place in the house, a systematic way of going through the Bible individually on your own. That's the first thing. The second thing is you've got to be in a life group and study the Bible together. And we could go on all morning about this, but it's amazing to me how many Christians never get in churches, and then they never get in churches where the Bible's actively studied in community. It's absolutely crucial that you do this. We emphasize it at Holy Cross all the time. It's one of the legacies of the Warner's time here, and I'm very glad to say that it is there. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, and I really want to try to not launch out of the pulpit on this one, but you've got to avail yourself of opportunities. I found myself sitting there in the study this week saying, has there ever been a time in history where if you want to study any subject, there's been more material available faster and easier than ever before? The answer is no. You do know that. You actually live in a privileged time in history. I know there's a lot of things wrong with the world. Please don't get me started. I know we're bent. We're in a fallen world. I get all that. But we live in the blessed time of the information age. You can literally study just about anything. There are free courses. What does that mean? It means if you back up the clock to my parents' generation and my parents are stuck in traffic, they're either listening on the radio or talking, but mainly they're getting mad. If I'm stuck in the car, what am I doing? Oh, I might not actually be getting mad. I might not actually be getting listening to the radio. I might be listening to, who knew? A podcast about the Bible. Who knew? You can actually learn the Bible standing in the bank line. Our parents and grandparents couldn't actually do that. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have websites. And much of this stuff is absolutely free or incredibly inexpensive. And yet, and yet, and yet, if you look at the Western church, it is massively impoverished in its understanding of the Bible. If you look at ACNA and the part of the communion which we associate with, the so-called Global South, so I'm thinking Africa, South America, Southeast Asia, and you look at that part of the church, they are not only prayerful, they know the Bible and they take it with utmost seriousness. And most of us claim to know the Bible, but don't know very much about it. And that needs to change. So that's a word about resources. That's a word about study. And I want to say one last thing, which is the hardest thing, but it may be the most important thing, and that is, do you know what a community that's passionately curious about the Bible actually looks like? Let me give you two examples. First of all, it completely transforms worship. You do know I watch you every week, right? I've actually been at this a little while, so I don't use notes. I'm actually watching you. And I notice things. And one of the things I notice is what people's attitudes are. Guess what it was like for me when I got to Holy Cross, both campuses when I started. I referenced scripture. I looked at the faces. They were blank. They were blank. I would say things like, look up at the screen. The screen didn't always have verses on it. It made me mad. But what a, a church that cares about Holy Scripture, there are two things about worship that you notice. First of all, people's attitudes is they're dying to hear what you're saying, right? And the only thing I'll say to you about that is that was not the case when I started, and there's been some movement. 
but we have a long way to go on that score. And I need you, by the way, as we go flying by, I need you to pray for the preacher, and I need you to pray for yourself. You know, every other area of life, like when you go on a trip, you prepare, right? You're going on vacation, you got to bring the right clothes, right suitcase, get to the airport, yada, yada, yada. And the same person comes to worship, and they're five minutes late, the kid's hair's going every which way, and they can't even focus for the first 15 minutes, and then they get mad that they didn't understand the sermon. That isn't going to work. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an incredible need for preparation, but the preparation is because if, if it's really Moses bringing down the word from Mount Sinai, then I'd better be prepared. You see what I'm saying? So it's about your attitude. I need you to pray for me. I promise to pray for you. I do pray for you. I pray for you to be open every week. I ne- we need you to pray for the sermon. But we need you to pray, but we also need you to come prepared and open. There's a second dimension, which is the hardest to talk about and the most beautiful and the most important, but it, it's rarely seen, and it's, it's what I call communal curiosity about the Scripture. If the Holy Spirit really falls and a church really falls in love with the Bible, and that's what we're talking about, right? If you actually love something, you can't stop talking about it. Have you ever been with Clemson fans? <laughs> Hello? I mean, they're just hopeless, right? I told you before, we had a family in Sumter where I served. Everything in their house was orange. And when I went into the bathroom, even the toilet seat cover was orange. You just can't generate that kind of enthusiasm artificially. They love Clemson. And guess what they talked about? Clemson football, Clemson fundraisers. It was all Clemson all the time. (laughs) They could tell you how to get there the fastest way, beating the most traffic. They were just incredible evangelists because they loved it. Well, when you get a community that's actually really, really starting to get going on scripture, here's what happens. It infects the community's conversation. It actually infects the fellowship that you interact with. So you meet somebody at the coffee shop or you bump into them at work, and what do you talk about? I mean, it's good that you talk about the weather and politics and all that, and sports, that's all, that's all fine. But what you find in churches that are really growing and launched by the Spirit is, people will say things like this, you know, I was looking at Acts 6 the other day, and I saw something, and it's, I didn't ever see this before. And the person's eyes kind of light up. And then the other person says, it's interesting, you should share that because I was actually studying the Psalms and I noticed something in Psalm 71. Now that, 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 that is unreproducibly powerful. And you start to do that on a regular basis, then you expect that person comes back next time. You're going to ask them, "What did God teach you anything? I used to have a friend at seminary come up to me every week and say, how is your heart? That's a really good question. <laughs> Another good question is, what is the Lord teaching you from Scripture this week that you didn't know before? Real churches have that kind of fellowship. It really starts to get going. It generates its own momentum. I will conclude, I think, this morning with an image from Billy Graham because I I thought about all the things I wanted to share with you, but I think I'll conclude with this. In 1977, the great evangelist, was asked if he had his life to live over again and only had a little bit of time, what would he do differently? It's kind of a good question. If you had your life to live over again, what would you do differently? 1977, here's his answer. One of my great regrets is that I have not studied scripture enough. I wish I'd studied more and preached less. People have pressured me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing. Donald Barnhouse once said that if he knew the Lord was coming in three years, he would spend two of them studying scripture and preaching, and then one preaching. 
Then he concluded the interview by saying, I'm still trying to make up lost time. Now, if he can say that about its importance, it's got to be importance for us. So a community that loves and studies the Bible together, it's a love letter from God. It's got to be passionately attended to in every conceivable way, never passive, always respectful, always open, constantly questioning. And it's got to be done together. I need your insights and you need mine. And a church like that, brothers and sisters, changes the world. That's the Pentecost church. That's the church that God wants for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.